The gospel lesson is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. This is the gospel of Christ. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The word of the Lord. Well, uh, yesterday evening brought uh, two of my daughters home, and so the four of us, like old times, were sitting around the table uh, yesterday before uh, the evening uh, unfolded, and we were talking about church signs. My uh, younger daughter spoke of a sign that she and her husband saw in Florida. It read, there is no stop, drop, and roll in hell. Now, why can't I think of something like that? The Pentecostals and the Baptists have all the clever lines. I may need a refresher course, maybe in uh, marketing school, or better yet, go to a Pentecostal Bible conference. I'll get some of these ideas. I do hear, uh, remember hearing an evangelist once referring to something like this. And he said, receiving Jesus Christ is like taking out fire insurance. Well, the scriptures do speak of judgment, don't they? They certainly do. And the wrath of God. And in places, the warnings are severe and they are threatening even from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is to apprise you of something that you already know. I don't joke too much about hell. I think I've told the St. Augustine joke a few times that God has prepared hell for those who ask foolish questions. But I really don't do much joking about judgment because the Bible doesn't seem to. And in fact, the emphasis in the Bible when it comes down to it is really not on hell and judgment, though it is there. The emphasis is on the great invitations of the Bible. The emphasis is on the great invitations that call us to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these invitations come from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I have already read two of them today in the liturgy. And I would remind you that we must frame all the sentences of judgment and those places where it speaks of the wrath of God by a verse like Romans chapter 2, verse 4, 
And here the Apostle Paul says this, or do you, speaking to the world at large and, and to those who heard him, and he speaks to us today, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Now, that's the way that all the passages in the Bible on judgment must be framed. What is it about God that allows us to speak of his goodness, that allows us to speak of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is it about these kinds of verses that truly have the last word and even the first word? What is it about God that enables us to see those severities of life and, yes, the severities of judgment in the light of good news? It is because of the love of God. I have approximately a dozen Sunday morning sermons left. So I am going to focus on what I think most important for you to hear from me. To speak of who God is in his essential being is an important matter. In fact, it is of utmost importance. And my text today is a text, John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35, which gives us a commandment, a new commandment, and it is a command pertaining to love. Before Jesus departed from his disciples, before his death on the cross, Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. And in keeping this commandment, it would be a sign to the world that these disciples belong to Jesus. Now, how do people know that you belong to Jesus? It'll be through the same keeping of that commandment. The new commandment in the text is very simple, to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must, says Jesus, love one another. Now, some of you will be prone to tune me out right here because this thing called love, you just get it mouthed everywhere, don't you? The problem is, the love that the world talks about is not the love that the Bible talks about. And the reason that a certain sermon like this is important is because it helps us keep rooted in the will and intention of God and who he is and not to listen to the concophony of the world. In the, uh, you might say, the memorable words of the song of Hal David and Bert Bacharach, what the world needs now is love, but it is the kind of love that Jesus talked about. Well, let's look at the command. The text here is found in the Gospel of John. It is a, an extraordinary gospel. It's extraordinary. It's beginning, it's conclusion, it's great invitations. 
It's, it's single-minded focus upon Jesus Christ. And one of the great themes in the Gospel of John, besides life, which you find over and over and over again, light, but you also find the theme of love. Now, in one sense, why would Jesus say this is a new commandment? Is that to say that there is no command in the Old Testament to love? Well, that can't be what it means. If you turn back to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you will see that the foundation has been laid for Israel, not only to love God, but to experience and know the love of God. Their entire creation is out of the love of God. They were the apple of his eye, to use the Old Testament phrase. For instance, look at Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. It's commanded in the law of Moses, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now notice the love for neighbor in Leviticus is grounded in the person and being of God that we shall see that he too is that one who has loved us supremely. Or look at the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. The word Shema means to hear. And so that passage, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, is a passage that requires us to hear, but it also lays out the very foundational duty that the children of Israel would have toward God who loved them. And I want simply to read the Shema for you, starting in verse 3. Hear, O Israel... And be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. And then the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord, your God. How much? with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So this commandment, if it is new, can have nothing to do with love per se because that's already commanded. God has revealed himself in such a way that the barith, the covenant, is a love bond. And the favorite word in the Old Testament to describe the relationship of God to his people is hesud, loving kindness, loving kindness. What then does Jesus mean when he talks about this being a new commandment? What is new about this commandment is this, the foundation for the commandment. Whereas in the Old Testament, 
the command to love God and neighbor is grounded in the revelation of God to Moses. The new commandment is grounded in Jesus Christ and in his, his uh, crucifixion, in his incarnation. It's a loving act entirely that God became man. The only way that one can describe that essentially is to call it an act of love, that God in Christ would come into the world in human flesh, in his humiliation, if you will, to seek and to search the lost. Now remember, what I have just said here is the entire structure of God's revelation. God's revelation is so structured that everything you read in the Bible must be read in the context of God's seeking and searching love for you in Jesus Christ. Now, I want just as an exercise to show you how this works out in the Gospel of John in a brief way. If we turn over to chapter 14, we begin to see why Jesus said, this new commandment, this new grounding in me, in my incarnation, in my crucifixion and resurrection, is indeed essentially a new commandment, for it has a new basis. A new basis in your history. Look at chapter 14 then and verse 15. And let me just read a few of these verses. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So right away, we're taken out of the sentimental and the aesthetic. And we have this, this, this love, if you will, rooted in the commandment. If you love me, he says, you will obey what I command. Then look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and obey him, obeys them, he is the one who loves me. So love here is being structured and described in terms of obedience. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. Look at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. And maybe the price of admission for this whole topic is found in chapter 15, verse 12. And in this passage, Jesus says this, and I'll start at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, says Jesus. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Now, what are we seeing here unfold before our eyes? That it is through the person of Jesus Christ that we have been taken up into the divine life, the divine essence. And if we are to share the divine nature, it will have a certain characteristic. 
Not so much a sentiment. Not so much an aesthetic. It is rooted in the divine will. And it appeals to your will and to your doing. Let me read John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. You see, this author had a difficult time giving up this theme. He not only writes it about it in his Gospels, but he takes it up, of course, in the New Testament in his letters. And if you turn to chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, and I'll finish the scripture reading here, you see this reiterated. Dear friends, writes John, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because, and here is the essence of God, God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Following the, class, the, the sermon today and the worship and time of fellowship, I have some small children, some of them not so small, to catechize. It's on the cross today, which is a demonstration of the love of God for you. And so you must remember that our whole religion is characterized essentially by a symbol that not only speaks of the death of Christ, but of the love of God at the same time. Why do you think this has become such a beloved symbol? It offers hope. Because who God is. It offers hope. What though is love? And this is what I want to spend the remainder of the sermon on. I have warned you, it is not primarily a feeling. When we think of love, we think of feelings. Now, I, I'm happy and delighted that feelings can be a part and are a part of love when it is deep and abiding. But if it's just rooted in the feelings, it is, if you will, shallow, ephemeral, transitory, produces little if nothing. And that kind of fruit Jesus cursed. It is not primarily an aesthetical experience. I love mountains more than the seashore. Some of you love the seashore more than mountains. But when I go to the mountains, a certain mountains, my heart flutters. I'm ready to have AFib all over. It's, it's, it's an exciting, wonderful experience. To be in mountains and to walk up high and to look down and watch, watch the rain clouds gather and come up the side of the mountain. Or to stand up high and look down on a storm. To walk the woods, to see the beauty of things. Now, I love more than that. 
But that is a beautiful experience. And I will tell you, if you ask me, without being scientific or theological, I love the mountains. But that's really not love, is it? Not really. It must be rooted in something deeper. If I'm really loving the mountains, it will be rooted in a doctrine of God's creation in a deep and abiding way. We love the Creator and we love the things that He has made in His handiwork. What in is love? Well, the Bible is very, very concrete in its understanding. In the Old Testament, there are some wonderful passages that speak to what love is. And it always is something that, that goes at the heart of doing. Action. In the Old Testament, if you loved the poor, guess what you did? You did not pick all your grapes. He left some on the vines for those who had no other way to get grapes. In the Old Testament, if you love the people of the land, you didn't glean all your fields and collect every grain. You, 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 if you will, cut corners. You let the grain stand in the corners. So Ruth could come in and pick up the grain. And that is a true love story in the Bible. If you love someone, you don't pick all your grapes and you don't pick all your grain. You look not simply on your own thing, but on the things of others. That's love. Love is, is willing to spend and to be spent. It's action. Further in the New Testament, love is related to devotion of God. You remember the story of the rich young ruler. You remember the story also of the one who came to Jesus on another occasion. And on both those occasions, Jesus talks about love. What are the great commands? And both had it right, love God and love neighbor. Love is then tied to a command, more to the will and to the purpose and doing than it is to your feelings or your sense of beauty. The New Testament then relates love as a general welfare, especially for your own house and for others. Welfare. C.S. Lewis and I've quoted him. Uh, one reason is I read his biography recently, and now I'm reading a work I have never read until we have faces. But in another place, C.S. Lewis simply says, what is love? Love loves an object, but it always seeks the improvement of that object. It seeks improvement. Does not God seek us in Christ and seeks our improvement? He not only has redeemed us, but he seeks our improvement through sanctification. And the love that we have for the object of our love always seeks its improvement and its betterment. Let me uh, finish up with chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. I mostly deal with this text at weddings. 
This is such a concrete passage of scripture. And I know that many people who come to weddings from the outside and are not unchurched, if you will, and don't know much about Christianity, and they come to visit to a wedding. I had a young man recently, not too long ago, say to me at a wedding when he was helping me here. I knew he'd been in church. And uh, I said, do you go to church? And he said, no, I'm not into that. Just, you know, like each to his own. I said, well, what if it's not that simple? What if God is a being that you cannot ignore except at your own peril? And he certainly didn't want to carry on the conversation. He went, Psst. That was it. Conversation ended. Now, wherever he's looking for fulfillment, he will come up short invariably if it is not in the love of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, which I'm sure baffles wedding parties that are little acquainted with the scriptures. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient and kind. Now that's very concrete, isn't it? Love is not gripping sentiment. It is love that is patient and kind. I have to remind myself when I am impatient and unkind that I have not demonstrated that very basic nature that I hope and pray that is implanted in me and by the Holy Spirit. Patient and kind. Notice he goes on to say it's not envious and boastful and proud. It's not envious and boastful and proud. He goes on to say it's not rude and self-seeking. Not rude and self-seeking. I have seen so many ambitious people, even in my own field, that they're two years over here, three years over here, four years over here, always trying to find a better place. And in so doing, sometimes it may come down, and God forbid me for harsh judgment, to simply one seeking his known and not the welfare of others. Someone has said the most dangerous place in Washington, D.C. is to get between Senator Schumer of New York and a TV camera. (laughs) We ought not to be like that. Now, Democrats and Republicans say that about him, so that's not partisan. But love also does not delight in evil. Rejoices in the truth. If you want to know how much love we have in our society, how many people are rejoicing in truth? True truth. Or do we want to be the lies, believe the lies and the propaganda that are cranked out every day for us? Do we rejoice? 
When someone that we know that we don't like very well is injured or hurt, the Germans call it what? Schangenfreude. A perverse kind of joy over the failures of others. Notice what he also says, it protests and it trusts and it hopes and it perseveres. It doesn't give up. It keeps on keeping on. Don't children need that? Someone who will stand by them? Don't we need that as mothers and fathers and husbands and wives to know that someone is standing by us? We will attain more through that than any other way. Now, I've preached all of this to say that love is an action more than it is a feeling. I don't think our world understands that, do you? But let me make one final point. You could go to worldview conferences, can't you? Come to our worldview conference, and you're offered a worldview. There's only one worldview in the Bible. It is to view everything through the lens of the love and goodness of God. This does not make utopian people. It makes realistic people. If you want to adopt a worldview and teach your children to do such, which God has commanded that you do, you must teach them that underneath them, regardless of all of life, underneath them are the everlasting loves, arms of a loving God. That will be a stay for them when everything else seems to have crashed in. Don't forget, my loved one, that underneath you are the arms of the everlasting and loving God. That's a worldview. And it works in every situation. Don't forget that the ultimate purposes and the end of all things really are friendly and not unfriendly. Notice the doomed scenarios that we have over and over and over again. I told you I've about given up on National Geographic. If they go to Montana one more time with that super volcano there that's going to wipe everything out, or an asteroid that's going to hit us, you might as well live in a cave. Hope for the best. We're supposed to be people of freedom, are we not? What frees you up more than anything else? To embrace life. All of its joys and its goodness and its heartaches and sorrows. It's the love of God. Knowing that that one who came into the world and died on the cross and did so at the hands of angry, murderous human beings is the one who reversed the death process to life. That's love. The easiest thing in the world for you and for me is to develop in our present world and circumstances a worldview of cynicism, isn't it? Now, we have to be realistic. Love is very realistic. It understands human nature in the way things are, but it is not cynical. Debunkers are a dime a dozen. Anyone with a mouth and hardly a brain can debunk anything. 
But to bring something of life and light and hope to a situation, it requires a worldview that is scriptural, rooted in the deep and abiding love of God. All the, all the wrath that is spoken of in the scripture, and there is much, all the judgment must be viewed in the light of who God is finally. He is for you and for me, and nothing can be against you. We are to teach our children this. I suspect that this kind of a worldview would empty the couch of more psychiatrists than any other worldview. I suspect that this kind of worldview would motivate more young people to study and to be the best they can than any other kind of worldview. And so this is important. It's essential. It is truly, truly bedrock theology. God is love. You can't get deeper than that. And we for eternity will plumb that mystery. How profound and gracious God is. And if you don't think so, then look at the face of your Savior. Look upon him and behold him who out of love laid down his life for you and me. That's the deepest, deepest reality of all. And that's the gospel. Amen.